Ladies and gentlemen, I'm taking you now into the boudoir of uh, the star of the show, Brian Mannix. Thanks to our very good friends at Murcotts. This is this is kind of getting really murky. I don't know about Murcotti, but murky. We're in the boudoir of Brian Mannix's current address, which we can't divulge. You know, it's part of the Witless Protection Program. Hello, Brian. Uh, how nice to be in your boudoir. I don't think. Bonjour, young oh. Kevin. Welcome to my boudoir. Oh, God. Bonjour, they say in America. Uh, Bonjour. Oh, goodness me. Now, it's just the, the boudoir is just the um, the most appropriate place for sound <laughs> for me tonight. So it's, there's nothing sexy, Kev, so don't get your hopes up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, darn it. Oh, dang. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, dashed again. Yeah. Story of my life. But let's talk about the story of uh, your life because this is called The Life mm, of Brian. Uh, what have well, you been up to? How, how, are, you, how are you going? Because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a murky road you're on at the minute. Well, I'm struggling with uh, the living. I don't want to go on about this every week, but the um, the living out of a case is is taking its toll on me. Um, I'm lucky to have such great friends like Lucky Phil and Becky, and and actually, what's been really cool is they've got their little daughter Ella, who's two. Yeah, and um, you know, it's it's kind of fun hanging around with a two year old. Um, because they say things like, you know, and she learns a couple of words every day. Oh, she looks good. Like Not from you, I hope. Well, I've really started to watch my language. <laughs> but oh, is that what it takes? She, one of her favourite things to do, and this is what little kids do, and I, I'm sure the mothers and the fathers that are listening to this show will know what I'm talking about, but they go, hi, Brian. And you go, hi, Ella. And they get your attention, but they don't know what to say next. <laughs> so it's just, hi, Brian. And you go, yes. Brian, yes, Ella. Brian, yes. <laughs> so I'm really working hard to teach her how are you. Um, ah, very good. But she's, at the moment, she's making up her own words. So they go, hi, Brian. I go, hi, Ella. And she goes, no, 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 no. And, well, you know, oh. at least it's a start. But, she, no, she, that's pretty She's picking cool. up stuff from you then. <laughs> and I went in the water today. It was only 21 degrees here and it was the wind was a little bit chilly and I said, ah, oh, well, because I had all this oil in my hair because I've got to protect it from the uh, sun because it's over blonde. And um, I thought, well, I've got to go in the water. And the water was warmer than um, being outside. And I thought I'd just dive in and, you know, get wet and get out. I just stayed in the water for half an hour. It was yeah. terrific. So, you know, that's great. Um, I just can't wait to get into my place. Well, uh, yeah. you, this is your place. This is your, your current home. This is your home away from home. This is your podcast home. Yes. So uh, make yourself comfortable because we've got a couple of terrific guests. We've got a fabulous sponsor we need to talk about. So we're going to talk about the sponsor first. That's uh, Murcott's Driving Excellence. Well, absolutely, one three hundred triple five five seven six. I think would be the number. But 
please don't let me interrupt you, Kev. No, mercots.edu.au. No, you've got that right. Advanced driving, defensive driving, they do corporate driver training, all that stuff. So, the, you know, they tick all the boxes there. And if you want to they, – they want you to think smarter when you're behind the wheel of the, of the car and they will help you do that because they will show you all the things that, that happen that you aren't even aware of half the time. I wish everybody went to Mercots because um, you do spend a lot of time in a car, you know, whether you want to or not, you know, and, okay, I want the Uber drivers and the taxi drivers, I want them to go to Mercots. I want everybody to driver training, I'm with you. You know, um, the safer we can make it, you know, there's no point in wasting your life by having a car accident or, you know, injuring yourself. So, you know, a quick trip to Mercos, you know, surely that's just due diligence. It's due diligence. Yes, it is. It is very good. due diligence. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Go and teach Uh, that to Ella, the two-year-old. When she goes, so she'll go, hello, Brian, and you'll go, hello, Ella, and she goes, due diligence. That's right. (laughs) Well, that's about as far as your conversation's going at the moment, so, you know. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it, but, yeah. So that's uh, now I guess this week, and we've got a couple of beauties. So Just that number one more time, Kev. one three hundred five 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 seven six. 576 That's it. Mercos. You owe it to your family and to yourself. You do. Now, later in the program on our very popular segment, I love that song. I love it. We're going to talk about, uh, I read one of the great Australian songs, Seasons of Change by Blackfeather. Now, Kev, I believe there's been a bit of editing in this oh, um, in this particular interview. <laughs> um, I forgot uh, all about it and um, was consequently shit-faced when we did it. And um, Kev has kindly cut out some of my comments, um, so I, I thank you for that, but I still <laughs> am dreading listening to it because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I'm slurring all over uh, the joint. So do our listeners uh, understand that. It caught me by surprise. I was out with friends. I was pissed. There's a whole lot of shit going on, and um, yeah, and on my. But you know, I still think we got the answers that we needed to get. Through the magic of uh, of podcast editing, you will hear a wonderful the wonderful stories behind both seasons of change, which I think is a classic, and Bop and the Blues, the other big black oh. song from Neil Johns, the lead singer who we tracked down in Thailand, where he lives these days. Mm. Not a bad place to live. Yeah, it's not bad. And the other interview, of course, to kick the show off, is a man who's about to start touring, actually, this Friday night. He starts at uh, Lazotte's in Newcastle uh, with his uh, show, Soulville. Now, that is Rick Price. Uh, who? Uh, That's right. We get to all parts of the world here. We've got you in Queensland, me in Melbourne. We've got uh, Neil Johns in Thailand. And we've got Rick Price in Nashville. Well, the price is right. It Come is. on down, Here Rick. we go. Come on down. Here's Rick. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Rick. How you doing? Good, Kevin. How are you, mate? I'm well, thank you, mate. I'm really well. Here we go. How are you, Rick? Mate, I'm good. I'm good. And how are you? I'm short but coping, but um, I've learned to deal with that over the years. But, uh, yeah, no, life's good. Um, I'm moving to Queensland because I'm sick of Dan Andrews and the cold weather. Ah, But, um, yeah, yeah. whereabouts are you? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, Cool. I've been uh, living here for about twelve years. So can oh, I ask maybe, that? Can wow. I ask that question? Well, why, why did you go there, and why why why'd you pick Nashville? Because most people go to LA and all that sort of stuff. But uh, was Nashville yeah. what was the attraction? Um, I'd spent 
quite a bit of time here in the 90s. Like um, I started coming to America in the late 80s and I recorded my first album in L.A. So I lived in L.A. for a little while. And uh, then my friend Tommy Emanuel, who's, uh, you know, uh, been living in America for many years, he was living in Nashville and said to me, oh, you know, why don't you come and hang for a while and come on tour with me? And that was it. You know, I came for uh, for a tour for about a year. I toured all over the States and Europe with him and I uh, just decided to stay. That's the sort of the short answer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of Australians here. And uh, Brian Cadd lived here for a long time. Um, you know, a lot of Australians have lived here. Because I go back and forth so much to Australia, I just feel like I live, you know, I don't feel like I live in another country anymore as strange as that sounds, because I make, you know, I spend about three or four months of the year in Australia, sometimes longer, yeah. and I'm back and forth quite a bit, so it just feels like I'm just a little further over the pond. Yeah, just an outer, <laughs> an outer suburb of uh, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne or whichever. Yeah, exactly. Sort of the, the 2022 version of Bow Desert. Oh, yes, mate, Bow Desert. <laughs> I, I get back there every year, you know, because I, I always play shows around Brisbane yep. when I come back and uh, I sneak down see I've still got uh, a lot of family there in Bow Desert. It's a good little town. Have you ever been there? Yeah, yeah, I, I did radio in Queensland for a long time, so. Um, That's right, of yeah. course. 4 yeah. IP, IP in Brisbane in the 70s, I was, I was there, so, yeah, Bow Desert was just, you know, down the street. Oh, Okay. Very good. The infamous brothers of rock. Best years, actually, uh, Rick. uh, (laughs) The ratings took a hell of a dive, and um, you know, I'm I'm not making this up, but a lot of people said that 4IP went off from about 74 to 81, (laughs) and then it picked up again after that. But um, (laughs) what do I know? (laughs) Hey, let's talk about this new album, Rick. Oh yes, the new album, Soulville. I had uh, just an idea. I was sort of on a roll with cover records. I did an album with Jack Jones called California Dreaming and we did all, you know, our favourite songs from the 60s and 70s. I grew up listening to all the Motown music. I learned to sing and play listening to Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin. All that music had a huge impact on me when I was a kid. So I thought, hey, you know, I won't get arrested. I think I might just make a soul album and see what happens. You know, so I, uh, I, and I was held up in my studio here, uh, hold up, I should say, in my studio here at home. So it was all sort of COVID was going on and whatever. So I actually recorded it, started recording it before COVID uh, actually hit. So I think I'm just a bit of a cave dweller anyway. <laughs> like when COVID hit, a lot of my friends said, so business as usual, nothing for <laughs> So did you record the album uh, in your home studio and did you produce it and engineer it and do all of that as well, Rick? Yeah, I did, Brian. I I, uh, I played all the instruments except for, like, horns and strings and stuff, played all the just the rhythm section instruments and, yeah, recorded it all at home uh, here at, at my house. So it was a lot of fun. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I felt like like when I'm playing to sort of like heard it through the grapevine or something, it just feels like like I was playing along with Marvin Gaye, you know what I mean? When you get into those, the spirit of those yeah. songs are so powerful that a lot of fun making the record. 
Um, and I suppose if, if you're doing it yourself, you're not making art by committee. You're saying, no, nah, I like it this way and that's the way it's going to go. Exactly. Is, I like which that, is, art by committee, yeah. <laughs> I hate art by committee. I don't think there's ever been a song or a book written by six people um, that's any good. You know, um, perhaps yeah. the Bible's an exception, but, yeah, I always believe that you need to have somebody with a vision and, you know, maybe some people help you out with that vision. But if you start, you know, everybody's got an equal say and it just pulls ideas apart sometimes. Um, I don't know. I, I, I like to keep my hands on on the music I'm doing as much as I can because I just feel that sometimes your ideas get watered down when you make art by committee. So good on you for not only, you know, playing it all yourself and, you know, producing it and engineering it because, um, you know, there's, there's another set of skills just to produce and engineer. That's, um, that's an amazing skill to have and um, probably one of the most important things you can have when you're recording is a good producer and if you're producing yourself, I guess you're doing everything right. <laughs> well, you know, you hit it right on the hit the nail right on the head, mate. Because I had a little uh, a little note plastered on my wall during the recording, and it said, "I only have myself to please," and I wrote that on yep. the wall as a mental reminder. Because I don't know about you, but uh, for me, creating music, that voice does come in to say. Everyone's going to think this is shit, or everyone's going to—you know what I mean? That, that voice starts talking to you, and I realised, no, I—I've been making music all my life. I just have to, you know, I have to trust myself and um, trust my own ideas. I mean, I produce other people, and you know, so. But when I'm working on my own records, I'm much harder on myself than I am on other artists because I—I don't know. I guess. What, who knows what drives that sort of stuff? But yeah, that little note. I only have myself to please. Was was my bible? Mine would be. Mine would be. I only had myself to blame because <laughs> you know there's nothing worse than doing something. Somebody says, "Nah, you should do this. This would be great," and you do it. You don't really feel like doing it, but you do it, and it sucks. Yep. And then you sort of go, "Why didn't I just listen to myself? To listen to my heart and follow that?" And if yeah. it's if by if it's crook, then it's my mistake. It's not my mistake by listening to somebody else tell yeah. me what I should do. And um, so good on you for um, taking charge of your recordings because it's um, it's an important thing, I believe. Yeah, no, you're right, mate. You're right. Something said to me that I had to have that attitude through it. Otherwise, I I could, you know, just drive myself mad. And I just figured, well, if I like it, then that's that's good enough, you know. I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I just try to make music these days. I go, well, this is what I like. And if other people like it, great. But if they don't, I don't care because I'm following my heart and art's about expressing what's inside you, not guessing what might be inside somebody else. You just express it. The more honest you are, I think, the better it is and the more it connects with people. You know, you can say something that's like, oh, gee, I'm really putting my heart and soul onto this, you know, I'm exposing myself. But generally, those bits where you really expose yourself are the bits that people really, really like because they feel the same way too. You think it's your own, you're the only one that feels like that, but everybody yeah. tends to feel like that, which is, you know, I think that's great. So I'm really big on just I'm going to please myself and others will like it because if they don't, well, bad luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because I've been in that trap. I think probably every artist does and it takes you a while to get to that place, like you've said, where you mm. are willing to trust yourself and please yourself. You know, we all want approval. You know, we all want to be loved and appreciated. And Oh, man, yeah, it was great. And it's not such a great feeling when people criticise it and say it's no good. You know, I've also learnt to take that with a grain of salt too and say, well, it's not even really that personal. If somebody doesn't like what I do, they're entitled to that and they're entitled to say whatever they want. And I don't have to go off in the corner like a wounded dog if somebody insults me either, you know, <laughs> and that's happened a few times. So, Even a, a government that wins an election by a landslide still has 45% of the population vote against them. So if you yeah. can create a piece of art that seven out of ten people like, you're absolutely killing it because, yeah. you know, it's it, you cannot please everybody. So you might as well please yourself and others will jump on board. I, that's my belief and um, good on you for having similar thoughts. Thank you, mate. Yeah. So how did you choose the songs, Rick? Were they the songs that you grew up listening to or were they songs that meant something special to you when you when you sat down to, to weed through what you were going to record? Yeah, I just picked the songs that I liked. I, I did give myself a bit of a uh, – I narrowed it down by saying, okay, there have got to be songs that were either written or recorded in the 60s because I knew that would help me narrow it down. And there's so many great soul classics to choose from that it wasn't it wasn't hard to figure out what the track list should be. But like anything, I don't know about about you, Brian, but I, here's what, what I do whenever I'm making an album, even if I've written all the songs, I treat it like it's a live set, like it's a show. I think, how mm-hmm. would I start a live show? How's that, you know, you've got to sort of work out your set so that, you know, it, uh, you're not just playing all really up-tempo songs. You know, you want to yep. kind of mix the tempos up and the feels up and have some quiet moments, you know, where you can really get quiet. Like I did a change is going to come, but I did it in a really sort of slightly different to the original. But, um, yeah, I just picked my, my favourite songs and artists. I thought, well, I can't leave off a Stevie Wonder song. I just can't. And so I chose Until You Come Back to Me, which is – a song he wrote and recorded in the 60s but never released it till the 70s, but Aretha Franklin had a hit with it. That's how I got a Stevie Wonder song on there, but I pretty much just just picked my favourite songs, you know. Were there any that you picked that didn't make the, the final album or? Yeah, there were quite a few. I probably started with maybe 20 or so and whittled it down to whatever it is, 12, and I wrote right. one song as well. So, yeah, there were quite a few that didn't make the grade because often you might have a couple of songs that are similar and, you you know, you just pick one of them. It's interesting that you say when you make an album because a lot of people don't make albums anymore. They have a collection of songs. And I yeah. I like the fact that you say that, you know, I'm going to write it like it's a set list. Like I remember when albums were big, I used to always pretty much go to side two, track four, to hear the ballad because you'd have the bit of a slow song before two to finish off, which is pretty much what you do in the live set. So, um, And I think that's one of the things that's sort of lost without albums because, you know, albums are designed to be listened in order. And, that, you know, it, it, as you say, it takes you high, it takes you low, it takes you to a whole different lot of places, whereas yeah. a collection of 
songs is pretty much a collection of songs. It's not as much of a, a journey, I guess. I still think in terms of an album, I think about uh, people listening to the album and, like I said, I, so I, I guess we come from the same, uh, you know, we're cut from the same cloth in that way that we're artists that made, you know, I just grew up listening to albums and uh, buying albums and it was the whole experience. I'm totally with you. I never knew about the side B track four, but <laughs> maybe that's a thing, isn't it? <laughs> there was that a thing I missed? <laughs> I, I, I think generally you know, track, side two, track four was generally, I think a if ballad. you're watching a new world, yeah, I think generally I'd go to side two, track four, and there'd be a ballad there. Um, <laughs> I think Earload on New World Record, I think they've got a ballad there. I think Telephone Line might be in that position. Um, but, yeah, yeah. there seemed to, be a, seemed to be a lot. And, you know, it's like if I'm playing live, I'll play 50 Years, which is, you know, a bit of a ballad. Um, but I'll play that about third last because, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, let's give them a little bit of a respite before we smash them in the head with the last two songs and <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes, yeah exactly it works well except for Pink, except for pink floyd albums where they only have one track on either side um uh, rick i wouldn't ask yeah, you right. were, were, there, were there any songs that were sacrilege that you just thought no i'm not doing that one because i just don't uh, uh, that's not a song that i think anyone should do or do, were there any songs that fell into that category yeah, well, one that actually made uh, the record, A Change Is Gonna Come, was one of those songs where, because the original recording and Sam Cooke's vocal is so devastatingly good, you know, that um, I almost didn't do it. But I thought, well, I'll just do a, a, you know, I'll just do my own version of see how it comes, how it comes up. I'm just trying to think now whether any... Songs that I just wouldn't uh, go near. I, I don't think so. Not really. No. Yeah, okay. uh, I don't think there were. That would probably be the only one that I was on the fence about because I thought anyone that sings a change is going to come is going to sound shitty singing it, you know, next to Sam. But I mm. did tune into a Bob Dylan performance one night, and it's on YouTube of him because you know Sam recorded uh, "Blowing in the Wind." Uh, uh, Bob Dylan's song, and I think this was like Bob Dylan saluting back to Sam. He uh, performed The Change Is Gonna Come, and he did a really different version of it, and I thought, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. Okay. That's what gave me the licence to do it, you know, in a way. Yeah. I think you're probably a much better singer than Bob Dylan, uh, Rick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if Bob Dylan, um, hey, hey, go, hey, yeah. Uh, um, but I, 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 love I know. Yeah, but but his voice is just amazing. I, I've always loved yeah, I love his it. voice, but uh, but uh, people, some people don't care for it. But I guess um, I've just always looked past it. I don't. I think he has a really interesting voice. You know. I, I can't see him going too well on uh, the Voice or a show like that, but. I, I can't see I can't see Peter Garrett or Angry Anderson going too well on the voice either. And one of my oh, favourite singers oh. is Lou Reed, and he sings mm. flat. But I just like yeah. the style. He's got his own style, and that's cool. So, you know, I don't think you should be intimidated about singing any song. You're one of the best singers in Australia. So, you know. Oh, thank I, you. Man. 
You, j- you just do whatever you like, mate. It's, it's <laughs> fine. Oh, bloody good, mate. I'll, I'll let it rip from now on. Um, I think the thing I wanted to achieve with this record was not to, I wanted to make sure I didn't sound like I was trying too hard to be a good singer, you know what I mean? Because these songs were all recorded by great singers, there's a natural sort of intimidation when you do go to sing them. So I thought I just had that little voice in my head saying, just stay relaxed when you sing. Don't don't try too hard. Don't try to do too many licks that you can't pull off and all of that sort of stuff. So I I can listen to it and not I don't cringe. So that's good. <laughs> Yeah, that is really good. <laughs> Most of the time, there's probably a few cringe points, but uh, but not 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 many. Being relaxed and not striving for perfection is, I think, a good thing. You know, it's a, it's about the vibe, especially with Motown stuff. You know, it's it's yeah. all about the vibe and the energy. And um, you know, on some of the Motown records, there's mistakes that the band make, but. The vibe's so good, who cares? You know, it's, yeah. um, as Lou Reed once said, I think, um, if you're at a rock and roll gig for the technique, you're there for the wrong reasons. And yeah. I kind of like that. I like that saying. So um, good on you for not being too hard on yourself in the studio, you know, because, um, you know, it um, makes for a better record. It does. You know, I learned something uh, from making this record. I mean, I've made 10 or a 10 dozen yep. albums, I suppose, something like 10 albums. Uh, and worked on a lot of other people's uh, records. But, uh, I, yeah, I really I feel as if I did learn that. Uh, like the penny dropped, I could say, during the recording of this album, that, yeah, I sound much better when I'm just relaxed and it's matter of fact. The best recordings I get are on my iPhone. <laughs> where I pick, you know, it's like, oh, shit, I'll look at a little song idea and I'll sing it and play it, and I won't be thinking about trying to sing it well. I'm just putting the idea down. And I come back, and that's the best of me there. Hey, tell us about the original song you wrote for this one, which is a a tribute to Aretha, which you wrote with John K. Peck. Yeah, we wrote it together, yeah. Um, We've written a lot of songs together over the years. John uh, has had a lot of big hits in America with different people. Yeah, Uh, Rod Stewart. Rhythm of My Heart with Rod Stewart, which I think was Rod Stewart's biggest record, and he had some big records. So, uh, yeah, John's a great uh, musician and, and writer, and um, we had this piece of music that we'd written together that we really loved, and I'd sort of hummed this melody over the top onto a, you know, my little iPhone, and we had it floating around for a little while, and then John sends me this lyric just out of the blue, Said, oh, I think this lyric could fit our song. Yeah, so I was just totally blown away. So lyrically, that's mostly John. Uh, you know, maybe added a word here and there to tweak, but it was basically his lyric. Um, a song to and to salute Aretha. I thought, oh, that's a beautiful idea. At first, you know, it's funny, I walked a little bit because I thought, ah, she's just passed away. People are going to think we're jumping on the bandwagon. But I realised, nah, that's bullshit. Just write her a song and, yeah. you know, send it out. Send it out with good wishes to her. So we did. Farewell but not goodbye is that song. So tell us about the tour, running around the place mm. and playing everywhere. Mate, I'm playing a lot of shows, maybe 25-plus shows, I think. I'm wow. playing. Um, yeah, it's crazy um, because we haven't played for a while. Our first show is at Lazotte's, I think, on the 6th of May, yep. something like that, and then, then we just go, go, go from there. 
Are you doing a full band on the tour or just acoustic and how to tell us about, you know, the lineup then your band or what, what how that works? Yeah, no, I'm just doing it totally solo. Uh, right. My acoustic, which is kind of fun because there's the album and people will have the album, so this will be just a different take on it. But Lazotte's, I have... Uh, I have a couple of people joining me, a couple of singers and uh, a great bass player, Victor Rounds, is going to join me. So, I know Victor. Yeah, you know he's Victor? a great bass player. Yeah, Victor, I've played with Victor a few times. He's filled in. He's a big ball fella. Is that him? Yeah, ball guy, yes. Yeah. He looks yeah, like yeah, no, the singer from Hot Chocolate now that he's got the, the <laughs> he ball. He does. Head. You know, the Abilian Michaels, that guy. Errol he Brown. Yeah. He never did before, but since he shaved his head, he does. But, yeah, he's a great bass player, so. Yeah, he's a really nice guy too. Beautiful guy, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, that'll sound great, you know, you and you and Victor. Gee, that'll be mighty. 30 years since heaven knows as well. A little Pay a little no, homage man. to that, will you? I will, yeah, 30 years since uh, my first record. Unbelievable. Wow. Where does 30 years go? Holy <laughs> hell. You know? You don't notice it until you look at a photograph or you see yourself on television. You go, shit, I really am 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel young. What happens? You know? Hey, Rick, <coughs> thanks, for, thanks for spending some time with this, mate. We really appreciate uh, having a chat. Thank you, mate. Really good to chat with you guys and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, our pleasure. Thanks for doing our show. Thanks, Rick. Keep rocking. Chain, chain, chain. Chain, chain, chain. Chain,
There you go. There's uh, some songs from Solville. Now, as Rick said in the interview, he will be performing those songs uh, acoustically in a couple of shows. He's uh, joined by uh, some other musos and that, but uh, basically uh, acoustic uh, around the country. Starts Friday night in Newcastle. It's going everywhere. Geelong, uh, Bannockburn. Uh, he's in Ballarat. He's in Melbourne. Uh, he's uh, on the Sunshine Coast. Um, he's in Sydney. So, uh, yeah, check that out, rickprice.com. He's actually playing at um, my local drinking hole at the moment, which is Club Burley, and um, he's appearing here soon. So uh, for uh, people in Burley Heads... Yes, uh, he is. That's Friday the 1st of July. That's right. And um, so, you know, good on you, Rick. And what a lovely man. Yeah, no, nice fella. And uh, check that album out. Played you a couple little bits and pieces from uh, two or three of the songs there uh, to give you a little taste of what uh, Soulville's all about and what you'll see when uh, when uh, Rick performs live on stage. But now we get to the segment we love. It's called I Love That Song. Oh, love it. And we're going to go. The best song ever. <laughs> we're going to go back. Uh, we can't say that about every song every week. We're going to go back now to the uh, the early part of the seventies and a very good Australian band. Hang on, I've changed my mind since last week. This is the best song. Oh, okay. Every week, I yeah, I, you you bring in a new song, and I go, nah. Last week's song, as good as it was, this is the best song ever. So I, I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm just saying it every week. I am truly saying this is the best song ever. But I'm sure next week's song will be the best song ever as well. Probably, uh, but this one is by uh, Australian group Black Feather, and we tracked down their lead singer Neil Johns. Seasons have changed. How are you, mate? You look great. Yeah, yeah, I am great. I'm good. Yeah. No, seasons have changed. I, re- I remember learning guitar and it was a big hit at the time and it was a pretty, it was a great riff, but it's pretty easy to learn to play, you know, when you're learning to play guitar. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that song and uh, good on you. You did a fantastic job with it. Um, you should do it again. Yeah, well, look, that, that's something that's in- interesting you should say that because that was something that I've been toying with for quite a few years now. Main reason being movies and TV yeah. shows, stuff like that, wanting to do it, but John's dead against it. Yeah, we've knocked back some beauties, you know, like you get a, a nice nice sum up front and you get all the royalties and everything for thereafter. He didn't want it. But, yeah, look, uh, season to change. Interesting. You know, John had this riff, you know, well, the melody line that uh, that he had. Uh, he could never never get a chorus happening for it in any way, shape or form. Um, he tried it a couple of times, didn't really happen. But when we started rehearsing, I sort of came up with a chorus straight away, you know. Because- Did you write the lyrics, Neil? Well, the chorus. I wrote the chorus. Okay. So uh, John had already had ideas for the lyrics and everything, and they were great. You know, they were great things. I mean, as I said to you before, it was all new to me. I was new in the studio and John had been doing it for years with a Dave Miller set. So the whole, the whole kit and caboodle of the song, uh, did, did that magically come together or, you know, all the strings and all the, uh, you know, the, the, the drama oh, and no, the vocal? No, John, and- John, John was a clever boy, you know. I mean, John had never done that before and that was his first foray into it. And as I said, he'd been recording for a long time and he had... Um, you know, quite quite a lot of um, you know credibility in in different areas of uh, recording. Uh, he'd been involved with a few different things, 
Uh, it, but it was his first time at writing string parts, so uh, that was quite a We used the, the string section from the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, so he had to write all those things, which was wonderful. Um, and John had some fantastic ideas and stuff, but he just had a, a um, I guess it's not uncommon, he just had a, an inner problem with, like an inner fight, so to, so to speak, where he, he would... Um, He'd need something to be completed, so he needed outsiders to complete it. Um, me and me being young and and fresh was looking at things in a different viewpoint, different aspect. And with seasons, as I was saying before, but you know, with fraternity getting it and recording, and well, they didn't record it before us, of course, but releasing it as a single, festival records, you know, that thought, you know, what's what's going on here, you know. It was, a, it was a given that it should have been released as a single anyway. But, but those were the days of albums without singles, <laughs> you know. Great marketing. Let's put out an album with no singles. That's, I don't know, what the, what were they thinking? Oh, I don't you know. It was, look, it was one of those things. I'll tell you what, when before, before Mountains of Madness got released, they had a, they had like about twenty board meetings, boardroom meetings about it was too psychedelic. It was just too much drug induced concepts going on, and it, it was like because it was festival records. You've got to remember festival records before they brought in the Infinity uh, label. You know, we your cold joys and and every and they were making a lot of money from all that that sort of uh, element of, of music. And they and of course they brought out Infinity. But unfortunately for them, Infinity took off. And this is a little bit of an inside story because what was happening is I think originally that Anthony Hordens, which was a major, you know, like Myers in Sydney, had shares, had big shares in festival records and and, uh, and then that they were toying with changing ownership or whatever. And then they decided in their in their sort of uh, in their business aspect mind, uh, let's get this little offshoot thing happening, and we'll lose lots of money on that because it's you know it's the young it's young people and they wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> and of course, it took off. I mean, because they had so many acts on there that were so good that Infinity took off, and then they had to go back to the drawing board and sort of work something else out. But, but yeah, it was funny. You know, they just couldn't. They're thinking, oh, I don't know, it's a bit serious. You know, this, all this stuff, all this. Yeah, it's all right if you're on acid, but I don't know. <laughs> I think it still holds up today. Like, you know, it's been recorded a long time ago, but the production on it's really good. You know, and, and writing a string part, it's it's totally different to writing, you know, like you're not a guitarist or I, I had no idea that it was the strings were arranged by you guys, but um, I think it's a great record. I bought a copy of it. You know, and as I said, I learned to play the riff when it came out. It was a, it was a huge hit. And you said before that you know, I said, "Oh, you should do it again." If you were going to re-record it, would you do anything differently? Um, yeah. Look, I, well, the the interesting thing is, I mean, I, I went out and sort of you know performed forever and more after that because I mean, John and me had a falling out very early in the piece, and, in fact, it was in 71. Uh, it probably would have been 10 months after the record had come out. Um, so it was one of those things where I went out, first of all, doing something radically different because I said, I, wanna, I, don't, wanna, I don't wanna have a guitarist. <laughs> and, then, then, and then searched for a, a piano player and, and just went down a completely different path. But doing seasons live for a long time, 
there were lots of different, we played around with it quite a lot. But season started to, it slowed down a little bit. I, I noticed it started to get into that groove. But you've got to be careful not to make it too, I was, I was going to say middle of the road, that's not really a middle of the road song, but if you know what I mean, too, too yeah. subtle or too, too, too smooth. But then again, yeah. who knows? But when you've got a great melody, you can do stuff with it and, uh, you know, it would be nice to sort of to try some things. I've were, been, you, uh, were you happy with the vocal on the uh, on the record? Oh, God, no, you know, I had tonsillitis when I recorded that. Probably a better question, Kev, is were you happy with the vocal on the record? Because I was very happy with it. I thought it was sensational. I just wanted, wondered whether I, I just, Neil was happy with it. Oh, it sounds like no. you're already pissed off about it. No, no, um, no. Neil's yeah, happy. The opposite. I'm happy. Neil's happy. The public <laughs> are happy, and you just want to be difficult. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, look. It's it's one of these things, you know. It was just a set of circumstances. Hanging around the studio all the time, the air conditioning, the whole thing, and not really needing to be there. But because I was new to it, I wanted to be there every moment, you know, I wanted to sort of, you know, absorb everything in it. And when it finally came my turn, you know, my, I, I was I was crook. And so I know that, but that's just one of those things, you know, you know that and you hear that when you when you listen to it. So that was a bit uh, yeah, a bit a bit of a disappointment for me, but it wasn't it wasn't a drama.
about Bob and the Blues? Was was that one you were happy with? Well, Bob and the Blues was an interesting thing. Uh, there was a uh, Wayne. I think Wayne. His name was. I can't remember his surname. He was he was the drummer in Flake. He was a bit of an ardent record collector, but he also ran a little record store in Sydney somewhere, and he had all these different records. And he came to us, you know, showed us this uh, Carl Perkins thing. It was it was Carl Perkins in a Canadian band called NRBQ. Um, now. He, he played this song, we were listening to it and going, oh, yeah, I don't know, you know. And, of course, it was bop, bop, rhythm and blues and it was kind of a bit of a swing thing and it, and it had, you know, I mean, it had elements that we could, I could relate to straight away, you know, as far as sort of popularity. But the problem was the, the idea and, and the concept going from there and to the piano player Paul Wild was the piano player, and he, he used to play in a band in Taylor Square called the Starving Wild Dogs, um, and, he, and they were a blues, you know, almost a tinge of jazz in there as well. And he came up with all these different things, you know, typical boogie, you know, piano boogie stuff, and we thought that's fantastic, you know. So, you know, wrote lyrics to this melody and then used the concept in the chorus, which was a... A big mistake, of course, because NRBQ's album was called Bop and the Blues. Um, and, and as soon as uh, I can't remember the record company, it was something like Melinda or something like that. It could have been. A, but anyway, they, okay. they heard it. We were recording at festival and, uh, and they, they got on the blower and started yelling and screaming and carrying on and going, oh, you know, you can't do that song because blah, 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 blah. So it became a big thing where it was going to go to court. And, of course, being a follow-up to a single that you had the year before, it was like you, 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 you sort of get there and you go, oh, no, I don't want to get involved in this. Look, this will work. This will be a hit. You know, no worries. This will be a hit uh, because, we, as I said, we tested the water with it with the crowds. And sure enough, the, they, they carried on and on and on and we went, oh, look, forget it. Okay, you know, this is this is... You reckon this is a Carl Perkins song, uh, and we just cannot. Festival going. If it keeps going, then we won't be able to release it. And so we ran with that. But the big and the best story about this whole thing is, I think it was the year after, or it could have been fourteen months after Bob and the Blues. Carl Perkins came out with um, who was who was he playing? He was back. I mean, he backed everybody, but he was backing someone. And anyway, they came out to Australia and someone from the radio sort of interviewed him and said, what do you think about Blackfeather doing, you know, your song, you know, Bopping the Blues? And he said, I've heard that song. That ain't my song. (laughs) We were sort of going, if only you'd been there 12 months before. (laughs) We could have gone in. We just could have gone to Melinda Music and he could have gone, that ain't my song. All over, all over. Now you're living in Thailand. Are you, are you are you writing songs these days? What are you doing, mate? I've got hundreds of songs, and yeah. I've been re- really one of those pathetic. I suppose no, pathetic's not the right word. No, it's I'm not. I'm a bit sexy's the word you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> and and the problem is just getting them done to to the way I want them is, is not as easy as I'd like. The recordings and everything. I've got I've got all the beds. But uh, it's the it's the singing, uh. you know. I'm more critical of my singing than anything else, and that shouldn't be the case because, uh, 
I know that, you know, my voice is probably the best it's ever been and I don't have a problem with that part of it, but it's listening back to it and in a recording sense. I've never been a big fan of recording in the studio unless it was done in a, a sense of a live sort of formula because mm. I, I find finding the energy that, that you want for that, that song is easy to do live, but in the studio it becomes a little bit Blase, you know, and I can sense it. You can sense it. You just sort of get a bit too technique conscious in the studio, whereas yes. when you're live, you just go, yeah. right, let's rock and let's yeah, belt let's this baby it. out. And I know exactly what you mean because um, I think, you know, my band was always better live than we ever were on record. And, um, yeah, you sort of just go in your shell a bit as a vocalist in the studio. I think, oh, I better be perf- perfect and Really, short of rock and roll gigs for the technique, you're probably there for the wrong reasons. You're in this cold room with a with a set of cans on, and they're going, "Give it your all, mate." I'm thinking, "Fuck off." <laughs> <laughs> it's been fantastic to catch up with you for starters, and just to say good day and uh, see you going well, yeah. which is good. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. No, it's, our pleasure. Oh. Brian said it before. Seasons have changed. Still sounds as good today as it did the day you put it out, and it sounded bloody good then, and it still sounds bloody good now. I always wanted to go in and do the vocals again, but that would probably wouldn't work either. I don't know. Well, you'd have to get tonsillitis. All right, there's uh, Neil Johns uh, in uh, Thailand where he's uh, building a house and writing songs and uh, and talking to us. And uh, we're going to finish with that uh, big uh, national number one uh, hit song. God, it's like an episode of Countdown. We're going to finish with the number one song. Speaking of Countdown, I wanted to ask you, I saw on social media mm. the shows are on. Yes. I can't believe yes. it's not Countdown. It's back. It's, um, yeah, I start rehearsals with the cast in June and, um, but, you know, it's just a pain in the ass working <laughs> with APRA, as you'd know, just through this show. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, oh, and, yes. you know, trying to get the songs that I want and, you know, at the moment I'm still about two or three songs short because songs that I, you know, it, it's, 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 it's weird in that, when I first did 98, you know, I could get – there are certain songs I could get. I won't say them because people say, oh, you, you know, that's not in But um, – and then suddenly you can't get them. And then, you know, from show to show, what you get is, is you know, you're just up for grabs. So, you know, which is – I suppose in some way it's challenging and um, we – you know, the show is, you know, if people have seen the show before, well, rest assured it'll be slightly different this time. So just and to explain, time, so, so if I've written, hmm. if I wrote a song, I, I wrote, you know, Kev's greatest hit and uh, it's it's yeah. there and you want to use it in the show, I, I have yeah. to give you permission to use it in the show. Is that how it works? I ring up, I ring up uh, APRA and then we get in touch with your publisher yep. and then they want to see what I'm saying about you. So I generally write up pages like, oh, this is the greatest artist of all time and a song that'll live forever. I just <laughs> praise them up and then I'll then I'll write what I really want to say later. <laughs> but I remember when we um, first applied for Roger Viduris, Get Used To It. Yeah. Um, here's a song that's gone all the way to this week's The Chart Buster. It's number 96. 
And then they came back and said, look, we'll let you lose it if you give him a higher chart position. <laughs> so we did. Really? So, oh, number know. 16 with a bullet. And then that's <laughs> fine. But, but you know, I suppose the publishers are always protective of their artists. And I found it amusing when Mushroom Publishing rang me up to see if it'd be okay if I could use my own song in in my own show. <laughs> Did they really? That's funny. <laughs> yeah. That is they funny. They wanted to know whether I'd be okay with me using Everybody Wants to Work in uh, Countdown. We've got That's, this, uh, uh, we've got this uh, Brian Mannix who's uh, trying to use your song, uh, Everybody Wants to Work. How do you feel about that, Brian Mannix? I feel free. Look, I think they knew, but it was a formality that they had to did do. You say, but, did you um, say, how much is he willing to pay? No, tell him to double it. <laughs> no, you double it or stuff yeah, him. I'm not doing it. Yeah, I should have done that, dude. You know, I'm just so shit at doing business, you know. So if when, somebody wants me to play play at a party, I'll end up playing for nothing and supplying the beer. Yeah. It's just rubbish. <laughs> now, well, I'm pleased to see that that's, uh, that's back. That, uh, that uh, is something to get your teeth into. Across uh, July, I think it starts around the place, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's going to just coincide um, when I can move into my new apartment. Oh, that'd be right. <laughs> and so I won't be able to because um, I think we start in Adelaide and then at Her Majesty's in Adelaide. So Adelaide listeners, please buy a ticket. Um, and then we go to QPAC in Brisbane and then we're at the um, Moor in Sydney and I think we do Palais in Melbourne. Yeah. That's a couple of months later. That's in December. So And tickets are yeah, available so, now if people want to grab them? Oh, I bloody hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so get a... So do yourself a favour, get yourself a uh, ticket. It's fantastic. All right. All right. Well, uh, we're going to finish with uh, Neil Johns uh, and Blackfeathers. Uh, their smash, smash hit. I preferred Season of Change, but this one was a bigger hit. Um, uh, well, of course, it is Pop and the Blues, which he, he just talked to us about. Look, I, I love this song. And would you be upset if I mentioned Murcott's Driving Excellence? One three hundred triple five five seven six. One more time. Hang on, I'll ring Murcott's and see if you're allowed to use their name. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, Mark. Mark, would you mind if Mannix mentions you again? Because you, no, you, no, no, he's willing to bring no slab, a slab, and a one three hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's okay. Oh, Mark's okay it. with it for a slab. A slab one three hundred triple five five seven six. Do yourself a favour, buy a ticket to Mercots to buy a ticket to Countdown. <laughs> and what were we, are you bopping the blues? I remember we got our first cassette player when this came out. And yeah. you'd tape songs off the radio. Yes. And Bop and the Blues, I think Ginger Man was out around the same time too. Caddy, yeah. And, um, and I had a great cassette of, you know, the DJ talking over the intro or, Wasn't you know, me. just missing the start, missing the start. Actually, I don't think they did talk over the intro back then. Uh, of some songs you did, of other songs you didn't. But uh, Bop and the Blues would have been one you wouldn't have talked over the top of because it had such a big, big fat start. Yeah, it was great. Seasons of Change yeah. you would have talked over the top off uh, at the start of it, but uh, Bob and the Blues you would have left alone. So we'll leave the intro alone. Thanks to Murcotts, thanks to Rick Price, thanks to Neil Johns, and thanks to you, Life of Brian. Thanks to you, Kevin Hillier. No, don't use my name. You have to pay. one three hundred triple five five seven six. Murcotts Driving Excellence.
Get yourself out. 